views and opinions expressed in Cold and Missing are exclusively those of the hosts. All parties mentioned are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Cold and Missing also contains adult themes and languages and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. everyone, and welcome back to Cold and Missing. I'm your host, Allie McLaughlin-Silkowski. I am your co-host, Eli Silkowski. And please forgive me, I am a little sick this week, so I probably won't be speaking a ton this week. Um, You'll hear me again more at the end of the episode when I have questions for Allie after I uh, hear about the case. Yeah, so this week we're going to be talking about a missing person. His name is Myron Trailer. And this takes place July 27th, 1988, in Phoenix, Arizona. And just as a heads up, he is 13 years old when this takes place. So we are talking about a kid this week. So just at the top, I want to give a trigger warning. We are going to be talking about violence against youth. There is mention of drug use and then rumors of murder and assault. So all of those things will be mentioned throughout the podcast today. But first, a little bit about Myron. He was born October 1st, 1974, and at this time in July of 1988, he is 5 foot 5, 106 pounds, he has black hair and brown eyes, and he wore glasses, but not on the day he disappeared. He also had a half-inch scar on the right side of his head from a bicycle accident. His family describes him as very artistic. His grandmother, Ruthie, had his art in her home. And the Phoenix New Time reporter wrote, quote, it's better than what you would expect for a sixth grader. Myron was very active in his community, especially in his church, the Southminster Presbyterian. During the summer, he was attending a recreation program there, and he was also part of the church choir and youth group and would attend the Wednesday night Bible study there. So he was very active in his church community. He also had a paper route. He was actually working his paper route to save money for a trip to Disneyland that his church was taking. He had just signed up to play baseball. He was going to have the number 33. And his aunt, Sandra Trailer, says, quote, He was a quiet little boy. He didn't cuss as far as I know, and he wasn't into drugs. He had so much ahead of him and so much to look forward to, end quote. So on Wednesday, July 27th, 1988, this is the day that Myron disappeared. Myron and his mother, Debbie, are going to walk to Myron's grandmother's house. And they're going there because they want to call his brother, Charlie, who is spending the summer with his uncle in California, and also because they needed to wash some clothes and their washing machine had broken at their home. And walking to their grandmother's house was something that they do a lot because Debbie didn't have a car, so they were very used to walking places. But on this day in July of 1988 in Arizona, it is hot outside. The weather is reported as being 106 that day. So even later in the evening, it's around 6 o'clock this time, it's still really hot out. Myron lived on the 1800 block of East Nancy Lane, and his grandmother's house House is on the 1200 block of Pecan Street, and it's roughly a mile away. So at around 6 p.m., as Myra and Debbie are walking, Myron wants to stop at OK Fish and Chips to get a drink. And this is about halfway between his house and his grandmother's house. Debbie says that's fine and to catch up as she continues to walk. Myron is served by Lena Watt at OK Fish and Chips. 
And OK Fish and Chips sits in like a business plaza, but it's just a walk-up window. So there's no inside seating. There's only outside seating because, again, it's Arizona. You can sit outside a lot of the year. Lena Watt remembers this interaction with Myron, and she claims that at this time, there was nobody sitting in the restaurant tables. And Myron walked up to the window and ordered a cherry soda, and he stood in the shade and chugged it. He then ordered a second one. As he's leaving, she says goodbye, and he waves goodbye to her, and he's last seen headed towards the direction of Pecan Street, the way he would need to go to his grandmother's house. So from OK Fish and Chips, Myron's normal route from here would be to cross 16th Street to a business park opposite of OK Fish and Chips, and he would cut through the parking lot there. And next to that parking lot was a dirt field that Myron would walk across to reach Pecan Street. His grandmother's house was just down the road. So Myron is last seen in the parking lot of OK Fish and Chips by four witnesses. One of the witnesses was Debbie's boyfriend at the time, Geddes Mintz. When Myron was last seen, he was wearing a white and red striped shirt, white shorts with blue print, and white sneakers, and he was carrying a cherry soda and a laundry bag. Debbie reaches the grandmother's house and says Myron is right behind her, but Myron doesn't show up. The family immediately begins to worry, but they think that maybe he went ahead and caught the bus to head to Bible study, because originally the plan was for Myron to pick up his best friend who lived across the street from his grandmother, and they were going to catch the bus to go to Bible study together. But it was starting to get close to the time that Bible study would have started, so they think maybe he just went ahead and caught the bus there so he wouldn't be late. The Bible study got out around 9.30 that evening, and there was no sign of Myron, so the family immediately called police. But police don't take it seriously at first. They think that Myron is out with friends and he'll probably show up in a couple of hours. But the family is very persistent that that is unlike him. He would have told somebody where he is going. Debbie also, during this time, rewalks the path that Myron should have taken to get to his grandmother's house, but she doesn't see anything and there's no sign of him. So the family continued to call the police, and on Thursday, July 28th, at 2 a.m., the police came to finally take a report. Police begin investigating, and on Saturday, July 30th, the police say they have no evidence of foul play, but, quote, we haven't found anything to indicate he's a runaway, and that is Sergeant Andy Anderson. Neighbors and church members organize a search and they pass out flyers. It's reported that 40 people, mostly children, search the dirt fields looking for signs of Myron, but they turn up nothing. Reverend G. Benjamin Brooks, Myron's pastor at Southminster Presbyterian, said that Myron had not told him of any troubles. He's a very quiet boy. He has no problems that I'm aware of, end quote. The next day, Sunday, the search continues with neighbors, family, and friends, and the family is interviewed in the paper. His mother says, quote, he's been walking back and forth to his grandmother's house for years. He's never disappeared before. He's doing well in school. He doesn't have any problems that he told me about. End quote. At this time, a rumor pops up that maybe Myron ran away to California to see his brother, but the family dismissed this idea because he doesn't have his uncle's address and he wouldn't know how to find him or how to get there, so they think this is pretty impossible. 
On Thursday, August 4th, this is one week Myron has been missing, police say that they are all out of leads. And investigators are still unsure at this time if he's been abducted or run away. Investigators say, quote, the officers who took the report also became concerned even though there was nothing to indicate an abduction. And they checked vacant homes and fields in the area, end quote. And that is Sergeant Andy Anderson again. And I just take this to mean that the officers who came at 2 a.m. to take the report, they started to take Myron's disappearance seriously, even though there was no crime scene at that time. There was there was no indication of foul play, but something definitely seemed off about his disappearance, and runaway did not seem likely. On August 19th, this is three weeks after Myron has disappeared, a $5,000 reward is offered for information leading to his safe return. And police also confirmed that Myron was last seen at OK Fish and Chips in the parking lot. And officially, investigators turn away from a runaway theory, and it becomes a child abduction case and possible homicide. In October of 1988, just over two months Myron has been missing, the police asked the public for help again. Myron had just turned 14 over the weekend. He's an October 1st birthday. Police are pretty frustrated by this case. Sergeant Mike Hobble says, quote, In Myron's case, they have investigated it thoroughly as though he were not a runaway, and investigators have not been able to determine it one way or another, end quote. So again, there's just no sign of him. In February of 1989, this is just shy of seven months he's been missing, police say he has been abducted and they knew this within the first week. Police also point out two other boys that had been kidnapped in the 1980s that at this time the crimes were unsolved. The first case is Brian Blyle, and he was abducted while collecting money for his newspaper route on February 28, 1981. A man was arrested for this in the 90s, but was ultimately acquitted mainly because they never were able to find Brian's body. So to this day, this case remains open. Another boy, Mitchell Amador, was four years old and was last seen playing outside of his home in October of 1987. Ultimately, in 1991, a family friend was convicted of the murder of Mitchell, so that case is closed as of today. Police say, quote, the frustrating part in dealing with Myron is we've really come up short. We should be further along, but we just don't have a strong indication of what happened to him, end quote. And that is Lieutenant Wayne Polk, the Phoenix Police Department missing person detail. So we are going to be getting into a lot of rumors over the next few years in the timeline. Again, they're all rumors and strange occurrences, I'll say, but they all kind of come back to Myron in one way or the other. So in the spring of 1990, Myron has been missing for one and a half years. Ruthie had answered the phone and she believed she was talking to her granddaughter who lived in Texas. But when Ruthie asked about her mom, the child hung up. Ruthie later told police that the voice could have been Myron's in thinking back on it. In the summer of 1990, a man called Myron's grandparents' house looking for Myron. When Claude said his grandson was missing, the caller hung up. And also someone called Myron's best friend, the boy who lived across the street, to ask how's grandma doing in reference to 
Ruthie, Myron's grandmother. When the friend told the caller she was recovering from being in the hospital, the caller hung up. So a lot of hang-up phone calls. In July of 1991, this is three years now Myron has been missing, rumors reached police that Myron was dealing drugs in Los Angeles, vowing to return to Phoenix to get revenge on his mom who gave him away. Police go to LA and turn up nothing. And police also say at this time that there is no evidence that Debbie had anything to do with Myron's disappearance, and police reveal she passed a polygraph early into the investigation. But the community, the family, police even, are all frustrated just by the lack of information that's coming out. It's really just all rumors and strange hang-up phone calls at this point. The Reverend G. Benjamin Brooks says, quote, It's about time that something be discovered as to what happened to him. Three years without one piece of information, that's a long, long time, end quote. Police say, quote, you have to believe that some harm has happened after this long to cause him to vanish off of the face of the earth. You have to speculate that something bad has happened, end quote. And then this is Ruthie, Myron's grandmother, says, quote, I know Myron. He's gone, but he didn't go by himself. He would have called someone or one of his friends, end quote. And at this time, Debbie has quit her job and relapsed into addiction. She had moved away from her family, so her family wasn't sure where she was living at this time. But Myron's younger brother lived with their grandparents, and he talked about Myron always in present tense and as if Myron was in the next room. In the fall of 1991, Debbie receives an unsigned letter saying that Myron's body is buried on private property near 24th and Jones Avenue. Sergeant Kevin Robinson says this is investigated, but nothing comes of it. In 1993, so this would be five years that Myron has been missing, a persistent caller tells police that a well-known crack dealer was bragging about murdering and assaulting a child. The dealer had gotten into a fight with his girlfriend and went to a bar near OK Fish and Chips the night that Myron disappeared. The dealer kidnapped, assaulted, and murdered the child and buried him in his yard. Police investigate this again and again since it's so specific, but they can't confirm any of the details. Ultimately, it turns out that this tipster was trying to get revenge on the dealer since his ex-girlfriend had moved in with the dealer. Sergeant John McCarney says, quote, there's no chance he's right, end quote. In 1997, this would be seven years Myron was missing, his grandmother passes away, but the family continued to receive letters throughout the years talking about what had happened to Myron or where his body may be. And these letters are weird. Ruthie, before she passed, originally began receiving the letters at her home. They were always anonymous, no return address, but she did say that there was a South Texas stamp on the envelope. But the letter says, quote, hello, I am not going to leave my name due to fear of what may happen to my mother, who still lives in Phoenix, as what I have to say is the truth about some very bad soulless bastards. End quote. In this letter, they call Myron Byron with a B, but they say that his disappearance is entangled with the Mexican mafia, and they ultimately point to two men who live in the neighborhood called Kiko and Uncle Tony and say that they are the ones that killed Myron. The letter says, quote, Now why isn't Phoenix police doing anything about it since about a dozen people have come forth? The word on the street is that Kiko is a paid snitch working for them, end quote. These letters keep coming, mentioning Kiko and Uncle Tony. They mention vacant lots, 
and they mention places where chicken fights happen, all having to do with Myron's disappearance. But when Ruthie and Claude pass away and their daughter Sandra, Myron's aunt, moves into the home, the home that Myron was supposed to be headed to the evening he disappeared, the letters are no longer addressed to Ruthie, but they begin being addressed to Sandra. So someone is at least watching the family enough to know to change who to address the letters to. The letters will ultimately say that these men killed Myron and fed his body to hogs. And the letters always sign, quote, a friend, end quote. In March of 2002, Debbie dies of cancer, and while police say that she was not a suspect in this, her sister Sandra does believe that she knew more than what she let on. She says, quote, she knew something, end quote. And in May of 2002, so again, this is around 14 years Myron has been missing, police revealed the only suspect they've ever had in the case, and that's Debbie's boyfriend, Geddes Mintz. Geddes Mintz is a known cocaine dealer. In the 1980s, he had been serving a seven-year sentence for aggravated assault, but was released four months before Myron went missing. Ultimately, he would be back in jail in March of 1989, which is seven months after Myron went missing for attempted armed robbery. And then as of today, of 2023, he is currently serving a sentence for second-degree murder after stabbing and killing his girlfriend and stabbing her mother, who survived in 2009. He will be released in 2043, and he has never talked to investigators about Myron's disappearance. But Min was one of the last people to see Myron in the parking lot the day that he disappeared. Police theorized that Myron could have confronted Mintz about his drug use and him dating his mom. Sandra said that after Myron went missing, Mintz showed up with his arm in a sling but claimed it was from a dog bite. Detective Bob Bernanski from the Phoenix PD, when asked what he thinks about what happened to Myron, he says, quote, I think he's dead and I think he's buried somewhere not too far from where he lived, end quote. On Sunday, July 28, 2008, the family organized a candlelight vigil to mark the 20-year anniversary of Myron missing. The family is hopeful that at, at this point, someone will come forward that didn't want to talk 20 years ago. Sandra is quoted as saying, quote, it's awful living all these years without knowing. We don't need names or anything. We just want to know what happened, end quote. Police say, quote, there is no doubt in investigators' minds that somebody is out there, probably in the Phoenix area, that knows what happened to Myron, end quote. And that's Sergeant Andy Hill of the Phoenix PD. In October of 2016, so this would be 28 years Myron has been missing, three men come to Sandra's door and one says, quote, my last name is Trailer and I'm here from Texas. My mama told me I had a bunch of kinfolk out here. Are you family? End quote. Sandra is nervous because there's three strange men on her doorstep and she's not wearing her glasses so she can't really see them. So she asks them if they will come back when other people are home. So the men leave but they never come back. And Sandra wonders if this could have been Myron. She says, quote, I should have opened the door, right? End quote. But that is really all we know of what happened to Myron. Again, police believe that somebody in Phoenix knows something about what happened to him. And if you happen to know something about what happened to Myron in 1988, please call the Phoenix police at 602 261 
6021-8042. Again, the Phoenix Police phone number is 602-261-8042. And the sources for today's podcast come from the Arizona Republic, and they really covered the story. I read over 20 articles from them about this case, so they really did an incredible job covering this over the years. The Arizona Daily Star, the Merced Sunstar, Uncovered.com, Phoenix New Times, and Wonderground.com. So that's the story of Myron Trailer. Wow, thank you so much for telling us about him. Um, he sounds like a really sweet kid. Yeah, over and over again, that's just what I kept reading, that he was a good kid. He wasn't into any trouble. He just, like, loved going to church, you know, like, that was Mm -hmm. his... I will say, though, and I know that in in context, like, maybe this doesn't matter, but, like, even if he was, quote, a bad kid, you know, Mm -hmm. no one deserves to, like, go missing or be murdered, you know? Like, even if he had been into, like, drug dealers are still people. Yeah. You know? Of course. Like, so I'm just like, I, I was thinking about that as I was listening, like, mm-hmm. knowing that it was written in, the, like, the 80s. Mm-hmm. Or even now, like, journalism, they really highlight, they try to highlight, like, specific positives of a person or or really, like, lay into the mm-hmm. negatives. You know, they, like, paint the picture or paint the narrative. Right. And I just thought that was interesting in, like, being a part of this podcast and, reading so many articles that have been written over expansive time periods mm-hmm. that um, it never really changes the way they choose to write about a person. Yeah. It's like the Either uh, you're a good kid who went missing or a bad kid that ran yeah, away. Yeah, and, like, it is very, like, when I, when you were talking about how the cops interacted mm-hmm. with them, my first question initially, because I haven't seen this person, was... Was he a black child? Mm-hmm. He is. He yeah. is. Okay. And I feel like more often than not, when a young black child goes missing, the cop's reaction is always like, oh, they probably just went to hang with a friend. When the family like explicitly tells you, I know my child, and that is not the case. Mm-hmm. And from that moment, they seem to like, always get it wrong from Mm -hmm. that assumption and that's what's heartbreaking is I've seen it and Mm -hmm. you've seen it like you know having an interest in true true crime and cold cases um yeah you just see it over and over again like that's usually the biggest mistake is Mm -hmm. the initial assumption and that it happens most often with like black children or by POC children Mm -hmm. or you know just marginalized people and it's um it's really sad. Yeah, the the idea that black children are seen as adults very quickly. Yeah, the adultification of black children. Yeah. I, I, I think from my like most privileged standpoint, I can say is that it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to see that happen, that that mm-hmm. like, happens over and over again. And it's like an institutionalized way of like people seeing like younger marginalized children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was actually very surprised with how quickly police... That's the thing I was also going to say is that this also seemed like kind of a rare case because quickly after it started to pick up pace and they they seemed to care quite a bit more in other cases that we have both talked about Mm -hmm. and like not on the podcast. Totally, yeah. That was actually when I started researching this case and, you know, I saw he was 
you know, a young missing black child from the 80s, I initially assumed, okay, police probably thought he was a runaway for a while and didn't Mm -hmm. look into it. But the family was able to get police out there by 2 Mm a.m. to take a report where, you know, we have talked about families where that took days to happen. Yeah. But, yeah, I had the... Like, double, almost like double take, where I was like, oh, no, it's happening again. And I was like, wait, maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah, and of course we don't always know what investigators have and haven't done until the case is closed. And, you know, unfortunately for us, we, we don't get access to all of that. Once exactly. You know, we, we only get what's out there. So we can't truly know what the police did or didn't do mm-hmm. in this case, especially very early on in those critical first few hours. But... I was surprised at how quickly they came out and that, you know, the officers at the scene became concerned Mm -hmm. when they were taking the report, even though there wasn't a scene or a lot of witnesses saying they had seen him be, like, kidnapped. They Mm -hmm. were like, something is wrong here. Something is wrong. Yeah. This young child didn't just walk away. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I... I'm very curious about the mother's Mm ex-boyfriend because based off of his record, which I was able to look up and see everything, he, his crimes did get more violent Mm -hmm. and it would seem to track, like it would not surprise me if he, in this small break of time he was out of prison, committed a crime, mm-hmm. um, especially a violent crime, considering he has a history of it. And in 2009, he murdered his then girlfriend yeah. and tried to murder her mother. Yeah. Um, so I will say, too, that it seemed like as time progressed, as like distance was made from his initial disappearance, um, it seems like, and as I think this happens with most cases, the like detail and information and like what might have happened became more muddled like with Mm -hmm. more as more years passed like someone was like oh maybe this fact or this Mm -hmm. line of information and it seems like they kind of got braided and like um confused together yeah there were a lot of rumors in this case rumors yeah yeah that were being almost said as like factual and then being pulled in as Mm -hmm. like part of the timeline of stuff that may have happened, so it sounded confusing towards the end. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Like, it, you know, police are kind of working under this idea that he was abducted and probably murdered, mm-hmm. like, the night he disappeared, if not shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the family gets these, has these strange occurrences, like the phone call, uh, or the multiple phone calls mm-hmm. of people either looking for him or maybe it was him. Oh, my God. When you started talking about that, I was like, the stranger. How they write to the house, you know. Oh, the watcher? The watcher, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I actually did. And then the letter, is that? The letters, yeah. That really, I I don't know if that person was genuinely trying to be helpful or if they're just somebody who, like, wants to wreak havoc on a family that's already going through a lot, which is fucked. Um, And sometimes, you know, people are unwell and... Yeah. It's could be could have been a lot of things. But the fact the thing that like really creeped me out or like made me like, oh, this is yucky, um, is when the person writing the letters, because they were 
persistent with their letter writing to Ruthie, but mm-hmm. when Ruthie died and Sandra moved in, they were like, okay, to Sandra, 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 Sandra. So it's like somebody that was at least in the know with the f- enough of the family, like was keeping so an close eye. close enough. Yeah, either close to the family or watching the family or keeping an eye on the family, but somebody was like, I'm following yeah, that's you. that's scary. Is. Yeah, and then yeah. I don't I don't blame Sandra at all for, like, these three men showing up and sh- her being like, no, you're not coming into my house. Like, absolutely not. 100%. I don't care what your mama said about you having family up here. Come back later. If and three the fact men they ever didn't. Show, if three random men ever show up at my door, your door, the door will never be opened. That's, like, cold, hard fact. I'm not opening the door if three random men come to my door. Yeah, (laughs) saying they're family. Yeah, I don't know you. (laughs) Yeah, and then when they didn't come back, I'm like, oh, that's a little icky. Um, So, yeah, I I feel really bad for this family because I feel like they've had to endure so many rumors, which I can't even imagine how that, like, tugs at your emotions of, like, he's alive, he's not. He's, I can't even imagine. Um, So my heart really goes out to this family and... Just having to deal with stuff that could not even be related because it's like that all just takes away from the main focus, which is getting him home. And maybe people with good intentions who are like, I heard this thing that maybe got warped through the grapevine, but I heard this thing, maybe maybe it's true. So they go to mm-hmm. police with that. Like that is, I think that should be encouraged to like go forward if you have heard something. But like the person who was just like making up this like, dealer because his ex-girlfriend had moved in with the dealer so he was trying to get him arrested for this murder like Mm -hmm. that just takes away like resources and time and like plays with the family's emotions that they might get answers might not be what they want like that's just like so shitty like don't do that again if you know anything or have heard anything we do encourage that if you have heard anything please call the Phoenix police at 602-261-8042. But other than that, you can follow us on Instagram at cold and missing where Eli, uh, we will be posting the graphics Eli makes. Um, <laughs> and updating you throughout the week of um, just basically everything that Allie covered in uh, a little bit more in-depth um, descriptions of what those things are. Yeah, lots of pictures from the case. Mm-hmm. And... While you're there, um, the link in our bio, it has, um, we mentioned this last week, but the GoFundMe for Faith Tito J. Garcia Quintanilla's wife, um, who's trying to raise money for a private investigator to look into her her husband's disappearance. We talked about Tito in December recently. Please go there. If If you're unable to share, or if you're unable to support financially, share in your communities a lot. This family means so much to us, and we really want... Really, even just posting it on your story, like, it gets another, you know, however many followers you have who look through your story, it it has eyes on it. So it does so much to to just share. Mm -hmm. There's no... um, It's totally cool if you can't donate, but if you feel inclined, like, please share it. It's really helpful when you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so please share that. You can find the link to that in the link in our bio on Instagram. Mm -hmm. While you're in your podcast app, if you could go ahead and give us 
a five-star review if you think we are so worthy of it. <laughs> or love that. a thumbs up, a like. You, you know what the metrics are. Um, if you're an Apple podcast, leaving us a written review. They go up on our fridge, and we love them, all of them. <laughs> um, also, if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it, you can give us a little tip at uh, buy us a coffee. And again, that's in the link in our bio on Instagram. So if you feel so inclined, we've had people do that in the past for us. And wow, you are prayed for regularly in this home. So <laughs> thank you again. If you have supported in the past or even thought about it, thank you. I know inflation is high. Money is tight. So if you've been able to spare $5 our way, wow, you're a hero. It's really helped us step up our um, recording quality and Honestly, we're able to spend more time um, dedicating like our energy to this. Uh, the the generosity from the listeners is is really helpful. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, but that's all I have. Thank you, Al. Yeah. Appreciate all your hard work as always. So have a good week and stay safe, y'all. Stay safe, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>